Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our sixth HOA Condo Academy virtual. Thank you to all of you who are joining us this morning on Zoom and Facebook Live. We have a great class scheduled for today on how to amend association CCNRs, bylaws, and rules. So good morning and welcome to class number six of our 2022 virtual HOA and Condo Academy in partnership with the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe. My name is Beth Mulcahy and I am the managing partner and senior attorney for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've enjoyed representing HOAs and condominiums for over 25 years, and my firm currently represents over a thousand planned communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. I also currently serve on my HOA board and have for many years. So we have a really exciting agenda today. We're gonna be talking about how associations can successfully amend their association's documents, And we're going to give you some secrets by using our five-step amendment plan, which will give the recipe and the secret to associations and how you can be successful when you plan to amend your CCNRs, your bylaws, and your association's rules. Also, we're going to be talking a little bit about the new legislation. As you probably know, our legislature is in session right now. And there have been three bills that have been passed by the legislature and signed by the governor. And we're going to see what happens in the final closing weeks of our legislative session this year. Um, Also, we're going to be talking about the new Supreme Court case, Callaway versus Calabria Ranch. And this is a really important case in Arizona. It goes hand in hand with our topic today on amending CCNRs. And we'll be spending some time evaluating that case and giving you some tips as to how you can navigate doing amendments to your documents in light of the recent Supreme Court ruling in the Callaway case. As always, we're going to have a free question and answer at the end of the class. So we encourage you to submit your questions in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comments section on Facebook Live. And we'll be sure to answer all of your questions today during the session before we sign off for the day. We do ask that you limit your questions to one question per person and be specific in your question as it's really difficult for me to follow up because we're teaching the class virtually. It's difficult for me to follow up with you if I don't fully understand the question. So try to include all the important details in the question when you answer, when you give it to us to answer. Okay, first things first, I always like to know who's in my audience today. And so for those of you who are joining us via Zoom, we're going to be sharing a poll on our screen. If you're joining us via Facebook on Facebook Live, please share your response in the comments section of Facebook Live. So we're going to be putting out there two polls right now. The first one is which city do you reside in or which city is your property in an HOA or condo located in? And then the second poll question is what is your current role in your association? Are you a board member, community manager, interested homeowner or other? So it's really helpful as I'm tailoring the class here today to understand who's here, what's the representative demographics. Do we have more board members? Do we have more community managers? Do we have more homeowners? And so that's really helpful information for me. 
Looks like the poll results are coming in. So here they are. We actually have representation from almost every city here today, which is awesome. So 3% are from Avondale, 5% from Chandler, 3% from Glendale, 5% from Goodyear, 8% from Mesa, 8% from Peoria, 25% from Phoenix, 33% from Scottsdale, and 13% from Tempe. Welcome, everybody. I'm so great to see such a wonderful representation here today. Our next question is we're going to be answering what's your role in your association. So we have 60% of you here today who are board members, 18% are community managers, 20% are homeowners, and 3% are other. So it looks like we have a top-heavy today representation of board members, but also really great representation of community managers and also homeowners. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us here today. Okay, let's start off first with our quick legislative update. What's going on in the Arizona legislature? We're a seasonal legislature or not a full-time legislature in Arizona. And our legislature started the 2022 session in January of 2022. And typically the legislative session ends sometime in April, May, or June. This year we're going right to the final day, it looks like, of the legislative session. The legislative session needs to end by June 30th or it needs to be extended. Anybody who's closely following the legislative news in Arizona right now will notice that their legislature is still talking about the budget and that seems to be dominating most of their discussions right now. There has been some dissent between both sides of the aisle in terms of what portions of the budget, how they want to spend the money in the coming fiscal year. And so that's been the holdup. This year, interestingly, in 2022, we saw a really significant focus on the number of community association bills pertaining to HOAs and condominiums during this year's legislative session. In fact, after seeing two COVID legislative sessions in 2020 and 2021, we had the largest number of bills introduced this year in 2022 pertaining to HOAs and condos that I've seen in at least a decade. This year, we have seen three bills that have been signed into law as of right now, and these bills are going to take effect 91 days following the official conclusion of the legislative session. Although these bills have been passed by both the House and Senate in Arizona and the governor has signed these bills, these bills will not go into effect until 91 days after the legislative session ends. And we don't know that date yet because the legislature is still in session and working on the budget. So as soon as we have the final dates that these bills are going to be going into effect, we'll let you know. Okay, let's talk about the three bills. One's on artificial turf or artificial grass and how that affects associations. We have another one on political signs and community activity. And then the third bill is on flags, first responder flags. So briefly, let's talk a little bit about the artificial grass ban and how it's prohibited for associations to not allow artificial grass. So basically, this bill applies only to planned communities. That's important for you to know this bill does not apply to condominiums. This bill was signed into law early in the session in March 30th, 2022. And basically, the bottom line on the law is that if a planned community's documents allow natural grass on a member's property, which most do in Arizona, after the time of developer control has ended, the association cannot prohibit installing or using artificial turf on any member's property. So if a member wants to have artificial turf on their property, they have the right to do so. Some things that the planned community or HOA can do to mitigate any potential issues that may come up would be install 
They can adopt reasonable rules regarding the installation and appearance of the artificial turf, but those rules cannot prevent installing the artificial turf in the same manner that natural grass would be allowed by community documents. So they can have some rules and regulations to regulate the artificial turf. The second thing that an association can adopt reasonable rules regarding would be the location on the property and the percentage of the property that may be covered with artificial turf. And this needs to be just to the same extent as natural grass would be allowed within the association. The association also can pass rules that regulate artificial turf quality so that we make sure that the artificial turf looks professionally installed and that it's of a high quality. The next part of this bill is that a planned community can require the removal of a member's artificial turf if the artificial turf creates a health or safety risk or issue and the member doesn't correct it after the association brings it to their attention. Also, the planned community can require replacement or removal of the artificial turf if it's not being maintained in accordance with the association standards for maintenance. Another few points regarding this new bill, plan community can prohibit the installation of artificial turf in several situations. The first one would be if it's installed in an area that the association maintains or irrigates. So sometimes in a planned community, the common areas or the front yard areas of, a, of an owner's lot are maintained by the association. So what an owner can't do is if the association maintains this front area of their lot, or maybe even the back area of the lot, which would be unusual, but occasionally we'll see a front area of a lot in a planned community being maintained by the association. The owner in those situations cannot install artificial turf if the association is maintaining that area. And that just makes sense because it would place an additional burden on the association to have to maintain that artificial turf. Second thing, if the plant community prohibits the new installation of natural grass on a member's property, the association can also prohibit the new installation of artificial turf on a member's property. So if they can't have regular grass in the association, the association can also prohibit having artificial turf. There is an exception to that in that the association may not prohibit a member from converting natural grass, obviously, to artificial turf on that member's property. One last point on this law is let's say that we have litigation regarding an owner who wants to have artificial turf and the association not allowing the owner to have artificial turf. The court is allowed to award reasonable attorney's fees and costs if the association violates this law. So the owner would be able to recover their attorney's fees and costs in litigation if they prevail. This law, of course, does not apply if the association, Planned Community Association, has unique vegetation and geologic characteristics that, re that require preservation by the association and in which the viability of those characteristics is protected, supported, or enhanced as a result of the continued existence of natural landscaping materials. So these would be like protected NAOS areas. We see that typically in the city of Scottsdale. So the owners would not be able to put artificial turf in any of those protected NAOS areas. Okay, let's talk about the second bill. This bill seems to be the more talked about bill, the bill that's creating more of a buzz in our industry. This bill is House Bill 2158. It talks about political signs and community activity. It was signed into law on April 13th, 2022. So the bottom line on this bill is it prevents associations from prohibiting or unreasonably restricting a unit or lot owner's ability to peacefully assemble and use common elements of the association, 
as long as it's done in compliance with any reasonable restrictions or rules for the use of that property, which may be adopted by the board. So this bill regarding political and community activity applies to both planned communities and condos. Associations cannot prohibit or unreasonably restrict the unit owner's ability to peacefully assemble and use the association's common areas or clubhouse for that peaceful assembly. What are some topics that owners or residents might be able to assemble to discuss so they can organize to discuss or address condominium or HOA business? including board of director elements or recalls or any hot topic in the association, potential or actual ballot issues or revisions to the condominium documents. So if there's amendment to the CCNRs, people can have a meeting to discuss it. Also, a unit or lot owner can invite one political candidate or one non-unit owner to guest speak at an assembly or unit owners that has gathered to discuss condominium business. So you can have a guest speaker, but it's just one guest speaker is allowed. The association cannot restrict posting of notices for these informal lot or unit owner meetings on any physical or electronic bulletin boards that the association may have. So if you have an actual standalone bulletin board and the owners want to put up notice of these special meetings that they're having, the association cannot prohibit it. Also, if the owners request to place this on the association's website, the association cannot prohibit it. One other thing that's kind of interesting is this bill adds the definition of political signs as a sign regarding any activity to elect or remove a condominium director or in support of or in opposition to a measure that requires a vote of the association membership. So just kind of as background information, there already is legislation which has already been passed many years ago that allows owners to have political signs for candidates for state, local, um, national elections. Interestingly, this bill also expands the right of owners to have political signs for association business. So anytime a planned community or a condominium has an issue to elect or remove a condominium director, or if there's something that's going on in your association, maybe a special assessment or increase in assessments or an amendment to the CCNRs, um, owners would be able to put up political signs in support or in opposition of any of these association type issues. So interesting new bill. A question that I've been getting a lot as an attorney that practices in this area is, do I predict that this will be something that is widespread used by owners? I really don't. Occasionally, there are from time to time when there's unrest in a community and maybe when there's some dysfunction. Owners want to have meetings to discuss things. And so I don't think that this is going to be something that we're going to see on a weekly, monthly, or annual basis in your individual associations. But when there's trouble, I anticipate that this is a mechanism that owners will use to be able to peacefully assemble and to require the board to provide notice of the owner's ability to peacefully assemble and so that other owners will be aware of these meetings. Okay, let's talk about the last bill for this year. Of course, the legislature is still open, but we anticipate that this is going to be the last bill that will be passed this year. This bill is House Bill 2010. It talks about first responder flags. It applies to both condominiums and planned communities, and it was signed into law on June 6, 2022. So the bottom line on this law is that regardless of what a planned community or condominium document states, a planned community or condominium cannot prohibit the outdoor display of a first responder flag 
Um, this flag, however, may incorporate the design of one or two other first responder flags to form a combined flag. These planned community or condominium also cannot prohibit a blue star service flag or a gold star service flag. So this bill goes on to define a first responder flag as a flag that recognizes and honors the service of any of the following. A law enforcement that is limited to the colors of blue, black, and white and the words law enforcement, police, officers, first responder, honor our, support our, and department, and the symbol of a generic police shield in a crest or a star shape. The second first responder flag that's covered under this would be the fire department, and that is limited to the colors of red, gold, black, and white. The words firefighters, FD, FD, um, combined first responder, department, honor our, support our, and the symbol of generic Maltese cross. The last area that's going to be covered under a first responder flag would be paramedic, paramedics or emergency medical technicians. And that is going to be limited to the colors of blue, black, and white. The words first responder, paramedic, emergency medical, service, technician, honor our, and support our, and the symbol of a generic star of life. So our office is going to be sharing with you some photos of the different first responder type flags that I think would be helpful for all of you to be aware of what the different flags look like and the fact that 91 days after this legislative session ends, those flags will be allowed to be flown regardless of what your association's documents may say on this. So we had a big year this year legislatively. I think a lot of these bills are, we've seen the artificial turf bill many years in the past. It finally was passed this year. It was introduced many years in the past, finally passed this year. The political community activity bill, that was something that was introduced maybe once or twice previously, and it definitely was passed this year. I think definitely a sign of the times with a lot of the different things that have been going on with the pandemic and other issues within our country. Unless the first responder flag is most definitely a result of the sign of the times. So big legislative year this year. We'll continue to watch the bills over the next two weeks to see if there's any other bills that may pass this year that pertain to HOAs and condominiums. Our firm will be sharing with you, if we haven't already, we have a summary of the pending Arizona legislation, which impacts HOAs and condominiums. We update that every week our legislature is in session. And if you go to our homepage of our webpage, you can find the updated version each week while the legislature is in session. And our homepage of our webpage is www.mulcahylawfirm.com. Also, once legislative session formally ends, we will be putting out a cheat sheet on the topic of all the bills that are passed this year to assist your boards and your association members with better understanding the new legislation that pertains to HOAs and condominiums. Okay, let's jump right into our topic for today, which is going to be amending association documents. This is such a hot topic right now because there are so many associations that currently have outdated documents. And just as a refresher, what are the typical documents for an association? So we have the covenants, conditions, and restrictions, which are sometimes called the declaration or the CCNRs. We have the bylaws of the association, which is kind of the how to run the board and the association board business. The Articles of Incorporation, we have the association rules and regulations. So there are a number of reasons why these documents need to be updated. A common question that I hear from many boards is how often should we amend our association documents? Like, is this a every year thing or is this once every 20 years? Generally speaking, association documents should be amended at least once a decade. 
I'm sure that there are many of you who are listening in on this Facebook Live today that might be looking at your documents and finding that you haven't amended them in 20 or 30 years or 15 years. That's okay. What I would recommend is that you place in your budget for 2023 at least $5,000 in legal fees to amend your association's documents to do a comprehensive amendment because your documents probably contain a lot of outdated language that may not comply with federal, state, and local laws that pertain to your association. Also, things may be handled differently in your association now and your documents conflict with how things are handled. Like maybe your associations allow sheds on an owner's property now and the documents, the CCNR say no sheds and a majority of your owners have sheds now. So you want to change that provision. Also, a lot of you have developer language in your documents that's really outdated and needs to be removed. So declarant and developer language is confusing and it's unnecessary to be in your association's CCNRs long after the developer or the declarant is long gone. And then there's another reason to amend CCNRs. Maybe your documents have conflicting provisions, like your bylaws say one thing and your CCNRs say another thing about how many directors you're supposed to have or whatever. And it's confusing because there's a conflict between the documents. And so those are the most typical reasons to amend. I've given you a ballpark on how much it costs to amend CCNRs. It could be anywhere from the one thousand to $5,000 range. It may even be more if there are extensive changes or if there's going to be potential negativity and pushback on the amendments by your owners. And we really have to do like a public service campaign to get the word out about the amendments and have a strong education process on the amendments. So it may cost a little bit more if you do that. Having been in, in this practice area for 25 years, I've definitely seen different cases that have been decided most recently there is a really important case that pertains to an association's ability to amend CCNRs. And so I want to start off with talking about that. This is the Callaway versus Calabria Ranch case. It's an Arizona Supreme Court case. It was decided on March 20, 22nd, 2022. Um, and our office is going to be sharing a copy of the case on Zoom and also on Facebook Live. So if you're interested in actually reading the case, you certainly have the right to do that. So one thing I want to say about this case is that a lot of people have been in the association industry, HRAs and condominiums, have been upset about the ruling by the Supreme Court. And there's been a lot of discussion that, hey, this case is going to make it so difficult for associations to amend their CCNRs and impossible to amend CCNRs. And just some starting points on this case is that after been practicing in this area for 25 years, one thing I've learned is that don't overreact when there's a fine tuning to whether it's case law or it's statutory law. I think the best thing to do is to take a reasonable approach and don't overcorrect based upon a case or a statute. Of course, we have to follow whatever the court or our legislature gives us as a ruling or a new legislation. But there are many times corrections that can be made in how we implement things that can comply with the case and still meet our objectives of the association. So if anybody heard about this case, the Callaway versus Calvary Ranch case, and they're thinking this is going to make it impossible or difficult for us to amend our CCNRs, it's going to make it something that's a little more challenging, that's for sure, but it's definitely not going to make it impossible. 
and our document amendment provisions and proposed amendments will just need to be carefully amended and drafted as in response to this case. So let's talk a little bit about this case. This is a unique case. Like I said, it went through the, the Superior Court and then it was appealed to the Court of Appeals. And then ultimately, the Arizona Supreme Court made this ruling in March 2022. And basically, this is a really small association, Calabria Ranch. It's only, they only have five lots in the subdivision. And in 2018, several owners, so remember, there's only five owners, several owners decided to amend the CCNRs by a majority vote. And they did this without the Callways approval. And the Callways were an owner in the association. And honestly, I think objectively looking at this case, I think that really upset the Supreme Court that, that these owners in this association, such a small association, they proposed the amendment, they got a majority vote, which was what was the requirement in their CCNRs, but they didn't tell the owner, one of the owners about the amendment. And they didn't even give that owner an opportunity to vote yes or no in favor of or against the amendment. And the owner, Mr. Callaway, claimed that the amendments negatively affected him and his lot. Interestingly, his lot was 23 acres and the other owner's lots were between 3.3 and 6.6 acres. So it was the Callaway's opinion that the association members went past this amendment to the CCNRs and they didn't consult with us as an owner, which they should have. And I 100% agree with that. You have to send CCNR amendments to all owners to vote on them. And then to make matters worse, the Callaways felt that the amendments that were proposed and passed by these majority vote negatively impacted their property. And so, of course, they decided to sue. So the Arizona Supreme Court looked at the facts of this case and basically, they came up with a few important points that I think are notable for us to discuss here today. The first point is the, the court said that the original declarations, the original CCNRs, needed to give notice or sufficient notice that there's a possibility of a future amendment to the documents. And I think we can all agree most association CCNRs have an amendment provision. So when owners, when the association decides to propose amendments to the CCNRs, when the owners became record owners in the property, they received a copy of the CCNRs. The CCNRs give notice that, hey, the CCNRs can be amended by a certain percentage of owners voting that in that manner. And so the case said that the original declaration has to give notice of the possibility that these documents can be amended, right? And the amendments must be reasonable and foreseeable what's reasonable, what's foreseeable. And another thing that the court went on to say is that the Supreme Court said that associations that are considering amendments to a declaration must look to the original declaration to determine whether it gave sufficient notice of the future amendment and that the declaration must alert an owner to the fact that CCNRs can be amended to refine the CCNRs, to correct an error, fill in a gap or change it in a particular way. And so one interesting thing that this court also said was that courts have the authority to blue pencil through amendments and they can fix amendments by making them grammatically correct when they can fix amendments by blue penciling through what they consider to be unreasonable provisions. And so this really gives the courts the ability to strike language from amendments to CCNRs that may have been passed by the owners with the requisite percentage where a court considers that the amendment is invalid. 
Obviously, this case is problematic. I think any attorney that practices in Arizona looked at this case and was concerned because it has a lot of nebulous terms. And how do we determine if an amendment is reasonable and foreseeable? And have the provision, the amendment provisions been worded in such a way in the past that gives us the authority to refine the amendment? amendments in the future, correct errors, fill in gaps, or change it in a particular way. Every amendment section in Arizona is different. The bottom line is this is a notable case. It doesn't stop us from doing amendments. It just causes us to pause and think about how we're structuring. Well, first, what do the amendment provisions state now before we amend? That's something that we should carefully look at. And then we should make sure that when we're structuring our amendments to the CCNRs, that we're doing it in such a way that it's consistent with this case. And, you know, there's some risk, no question about it. But if you structure the amendments in a way that addresses the issues that have been raised in this case, and you're not doing overreaching amendments that weren't foreseeable, and amendments are reasonable, then we feel that you should be able to work with the confines of this case and amend your documents. So bottom line is, this case is notable. It causes us to think more carefully about how we're structuring our amendments going forward, but we still are proceeding forward with amendments. And I think it's the intent of this case. They weren't giving us a direction that, hey, you can never amend your CCNRs. It just is saying that There needs to be fine-tuning and analysis as to how you're actually awarding the amendments. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about a five-step plan. So if you're one of these associations that has documents that haven't been amended in a decade, the next few things that we're going to be talking about are really important for your association. Um, We've structured a five-step plan. In the 25 years that I've been practicing in this area, we have fine-tuned it, made it better. And if you follow this plan, your association will be successful in navigating the amendment process and successful in getting the amendments passed. So let's start out with what the first part of the five-step plan is. And we actually have a cheat sheet on this topic that if my office hasn't already shared it with you, we will be sharing it with you shortly. The cheat sheet just outlines the five steps and gives a little bit more detailed analysis in terms of what you should be doing in each step. Okay, so five-step plan. Here's the plan you need to follow if you want to successfully amend your CCNRs. So step number one, what is required to amend the documents? So the board needs to check the specific language of whatever document you want to amend. So the CCNRs typically have an amendment provision, and you're going to need to go to that amendment provision. You may want to consult with your attorney at this point to talk a little bit about the Callaway case and see how that case might amend, might affect your amendment provision and whether or not it's worded in a way that would give you the ability to amend in light of the Calway case. The bylaws also have an amendment provision. Articles of incorporation typically have an amendment provision. Rules are typically amended by a board vote. And that's usually also set up in the CCNRs or the bylaws saying how the rules can be implemented and amended. Most documents do require approval of the membership to amend. And there are some rare cases where the board can amend the documents. Typically, it's going to be like the rules and regulations are normally when the owners can, the board can amend the rules and regulations. But occasionally, the bylaws can be amended by a board vote too. So it's real important that you look at the amendment section for each document. Also, another point to think about is that this is a time where you definitely want to have your attorney involved because the amendment sections are worded in such a way that sometimes it's confusing. So sometimes there's language in there that says, 
the CCNRs can be amended by 67% of the owners voting at a meeting of the membership where a quorum is present. And that is different than 67% of all owners. So sometimes the exact language of the amendment provision makes it easier or harder for your association to amend. So for example, if you have a section, like I said, in your CCNRs that says you only need 67% of those voting at a meeting of the membership where a quorum is present, you just need to have a quorum at the meeting and you're gonna find that typically in your bylaws. And then you just need 67% of a quorum to approve the amendment. And that's typically gonna be a lot lower than 67% of the entire membership. Very important to talk with your legal counsel so that you make sure you understand the language of the amendment provision and you know exactly what the exact number is that you're going to need to amend the document successfully. Another important tidbit that I want to mention to you is sometimes the amendment provisions require that the amendment ballot be acknowledged. And what that typically means is that the ballot itself needs to be notarized. And that's a whole another step that makes it more difficult to get the ballots back because the owners will have to sign it in the presence of a notary. And that's an unusual add-on that's going to be more difficult for your association. We have some tips if you're in that situation. Typically, we'll have a notary come to the association and hang out at the pool on a Saturday. And anyone who wants to come and have their signatures notarized would be able to have the association, the notary hired by the association to sign it to stamp the notary stamp on it and witness the signature. Some other kind of weird things that can come up. Sometimes there's a provision in the Condominium Act that says that in order to amend your association's documents, it requires approval of 67% of the votes within the condominium association or any larger percentage if the CCNRs specify a larger percentage. So that's important because sometimes older sets of condominium CCNRs may say that you can amend them with just 51% of the membership. That's when the state law would kick in and would say, no, you actually need 67% because the state law trumps your documents. And if it's lower than 67%, the 67% would need to be met as a benchmark under the state law. So there are just some kind of weird nuances. There's also sometimes where we'll see a requirement that you have to have the first mortgage or the first deed of trust approve any amendments. And that's a weird outlier that's left over from the 1980s that most mortgage companies and deed of trust companies don't even know what to do with the ballot when it comes in. And so we have a specific strategy. If you're one of those associations that has that difficult language, we have a specific strategy that we follow on those to help you navigate that process. So the first step is just really important because we have to determine what exactly is required to amend the documents. And like I said, it's really smart to have your legal counsel helping you determine what is the percentage that you need to amend each respective document or whether the board can amend the documents. Okay, step one, figure out what percentage you need. Step two is the long step. This is the step where we review the documents for changes and then we draft the proposed changes. And typically what I prefer as legal counsel for associations is I prefer if the association lets me do the first draft of the amendments. And so what our office typically does is 
we place all the documents into a Word document and we turn on the track changes function in the Word document. And we just start going through the documents several times and we start making changes to the documents. And those changes are redlined. So it's very simple to see what we're changing, what's being removed, what's being added. And any questions or comments we have, we can put in the comment sidebar. And so what we'll typically do is go through the document four or five times with the changes. And then we will send those to the board. And sometimes it's just one board member who's our liaison, or maybe there's a committee, or maybe it's the entire board. And then they look at our changes and they come up with any comments or changes of their own. They also redline the document so that we can track what's been changed by them and any questions that they may have. And then after they get us back their comments on the document that's being revised, then we set up a meeting. It's most meetings now are on Zoom, which is probably most convenient for everybody. And we go through the document page by page and clear up any questions that anyone may have or talk about any potential conflicts or issues that may be arising. And that's typically a really productive meeting, usually is about an hour in length. And we analyze the document and talk about, okay, this is, these are the final changes that we're going to make. We go back and forth and come up with decisions on these are the final amendments that we're agreeing to as legal counsel and the board. The next step is the step, step three, that every board wants to skip, but it's really one of the most important steps. So step two, of course, we come up with all the changes and we go back and forth between legal counsel and the association's board. Step three is when we take those changes to your members and ask for their input. We're not asking for their vote yet. Basically, what we're asking for is let us know what you think about the document. And typically what we'll do is there may be a mailing that's sent out with the actual document, a hard copy of the actual document. It also could be a, we could have a town hall meeting. We could put the document on the association's website and ask for comments. We could send it out by email. A lot of associations use a comment card system where they ask the owners to review the documents. We give them typically two weeks to a month to give us their comments back. And basically, we, you're not going to get a lot of comments back, honestly. Maybe 10% of your owners will give you feedback that they like or don't like certain provisions. And that is really helpful because it gives us feedback as to you know, what provisions may be controversial and that we may not want to include because it may tank the entire amendment. Or maybe people give us feedback that, hey, did you think about adding this? This would be a really helpful provision. And so soliciting information from the community regarding the amendments is important because it gives us feedback so that if there's something that there's negative feedback, that we can take that document, part of the document out or fine tune it further or add something. We typically get the comment cards back as a board and then the board and legal counsel have a very short meeting, maybe 30 minutes. And we decide what are going to be the final changes based upon the comments. And we strategize. We definitely strategize as to get a lot of negative feedback on something. Are we going to separate that out and vote on that separately, that controversial issue? Or are we going to risk it and put it in the document and just kind of strategize on all of that as a team as to what the best procedure is. So another benefit of talking to your homeowners about the amendment before they're asked to vote on it is 
when we get to the voting part, which is going to be the next step, there'll be some owners that'll say, I don't like this. I don't want this. Why are we doing this? We can remind them that in step three, hey, we went to you and asked for your feedback, but we never heard back from you. And that usually is a silencer. Usually people stop complaining at that point and they just vote yes or no. Okay, so step four, this is developing a plan for a reasonable time frame to get the amendments voted on and passed. So basically at this step, we are sending out a ballot that's created by your legal counsel, the final version of the amended document, whether it's CCNRs, the bylaws, articles of incorporation, and it's typically redlined. So it's very easy for people to know what's being changed. The ballot gives them a chance to vote on the entire document. Maybe we've got a side vote on something that's controversial as a secondary vote. And this is where we talk about how long do we think it's going to take to get the percentage we need to approve the amendments. Some associations tell me it takes 30 days. That's very rare. Most associations, it takes somewhere between three, six, nine months to get the votes that they need to amend the documents. You may want to do the voting in conjunction with an annual meeting because you typically have higher participation at an annual meeting. There's a whole strategy that goes into when we send out the ballot, how long we give them to return it. Are we going to do it in conjunction with an annual meeting? Basically, we map out how long we think it's going to take. Okay, so as part of step four, we sent out the ballot. Now we're starting to get the ballots back. And typically what happens is we see somewhere between 30 and 50% of the ballots come back within a pretty quick time frame, like 30 to 60, 90 days. And then after that initial wave of yes or no ballots comes back, then honestly, it's just blood, sweat and tears to get the last percentage that you need. So what we typically will do is we work with the board, we create a spreadsheet and we list all the owners' names in your association. And we list if they voted or not voted. And we start a follow-up plan for getting the owners who haven't voted to try to vote. So we'll start emailing those owners that haven't voted. We will maybe pick up the phone and contact them. Some associations break up into block captains and they'll knock on doors of people who live on their block to try to get them to vote. Um, There's a number of different ways you can do it by mail, email, reminders at meetings, knocking on doors, phone calls. And really, it does take blood, sweat, and tears to get those final votes to push us over the threshold. Okay, the last step is you now receive the number of votes that you need to successfully amend whatever document you're trying to amend. And once those final votes come in, we verify that the record owner has signed the ballot to make sure that it's a valid vote. We are required to create an amendment document that the president and the secretary of the association sign in the presence of the notary, indicating what those final amendments are. That document, the amended, whether it's just an amended amendment to the CCNRs or maybe it's an amended and restated full set of your CCNRs, those need to be recorded with the Maricopa County Recorder's Office or whatever county live-in recorder's office within 30 days of obtaining the requisite vote to amend the document. So it's this is a time 
issue. So it's very important that we're keeping track on the spreadsheet, the votes as they're coming in, and that once we meet the threshold, the number of votes that we need, we verify that the votes are signed by record owners and are valid, and we need to record the amendment within 30 days of getting that last vote. Now, the CCNRs are the only document that gets recorded with the county recorder's office. The bylaws are just placed with the association's records and are signed also by the president and the secretary. The bylaws don't have to be signed in the presence of a notary. Um, the rules, as we've stated previously during the seminar, the rules are typically amended by the board. And so the meeting minutes would just need to reflect the uh, fact that the rule or rules have been amended. And then remember, as part of the closure on this process, we have to make sure that the owners all receive a copy of whatever's been amended. So there needs to be a mailing or an email to all owners with these are your revised documents. Also, make sure that the management company is providing updated documents to any purchasers. So as you probably know, when a property is sold in an association under Arizona law, a disclosure statement is provided to the buyer with all aspects of the association. And one of those aspects is the association's documents. So when the management company is providing the documents to the buyer, we want to make sure that they're providing the updated amended documents that have been are now in effect and been passed by the owners. And so really that's the five-step plan. It works. When boards try to skip steps or rush the process, sometimes it doesn't work. So just a quick refresher, um, first step is determine what percentage you need of your owners to amend the document. Are there any special considerations? Like, does the ballot have to be notarized? Do we have to get first deed of trust approval or first mortgage approval? Step two, create the changes to the document using track changes function and a Word document. Work closely with the board and legal counsel. Step three, go out to your owners and talk to them about the amendments. Have a town hall, have a coffee and donuts, send them by email the proposed documents and ask for their input. Have a comment card where they can comment back or give them an email that they can email back their comments. Step four is going to be coming up with the plan for the ballot, the final document that you're going to use for the amendment after getting the homeowner's input, incorporating changes after getting the homeowner's input, then tracking the ballots when they come in, and then knowing that you need to record those amendments within 30 days. With step five, finalizing and recording the CCNRs and finalizing the bylaws if those are the things that are needing to be amended. Okay, I'm just going to spend a brief period of time talking a little bit about rental restrictions and short-term rentals, because that's such a hot topic right now in Arizona and around our country. So how does short-term rentals play into this whole amendment to your CCNRs process? Back in, in 2016, the Arizona legislature passed a law that basically took away a city, town, or municipality's ability to regulate short-term rentals. And that was really a game changer in our industry because prior to that legislative session in 2016, cities, towns, counties, they regulated short-term rentals through zoning and through ordinances. And so associations really didn't have to worry about having a hotel pop up next to them with nightly rentals because everything was zoned in such a way that transient housing was in certain zoning districts and transient housing is going to be considered like hotel type housing. And that was never going to be in the residential areas that HOAs and condos were. 
well, game changed in 2016. And the legislature took away the city, towns, and counties' ability to, you know, regulate short-term rentals. And basically what happened is the legislature said, well, if an association wants to prohibit short-term rentals or prohibit rentals, you just need to amend your CCNRs to include that provision. What the legislature didn't really understand is, hey, it's not easy to amend CCNRs. We just went through that whole five-step plan, right? And I said it can take anywhere from you know 30 days to nine months to get owners to approve an amendment. So it's not a simple process for the association to adjust after 2016 and create rental restriction or short-term rental restrictions in your CCNR. So, you know, just a couple of thoughts on this. If you're an association that doesn't want rentals in your community, or you're an association that wants to put a minimum rental period in your community, so like a minimum 30 days or a minimum 60 days or a minimum 90 day rental period that you can rent, but it has to, you have to have a lease that's for this minimum amount. You definitely need to consult with legal counsel and come up with a plan. There's all kinds of nuances on this, but if you're a condo, it's going to be more difficult typically to prohibit rentals altogether because there's a section in the Condominium Act that says any change of use requires unanimous consent. And obviously, unanimous consent is basically impossible. So what you may want to do with your condominium, if you want to implement short-term rental restrictions, you may want to come up with a time period, a minimum time period that somebody can rent and incorporate that as an amendment into your condominium CCNRs. Planned Communities doesn't have that section talking about change of use. So it's a little bit more open in terms of prohibiting rentals or implementing minimum rental periods, time periods. But there's a strategy that goes into these rental restriction amendments. You know, we've got to look at, okay, how many lots do you have in your association and how many people are currently renting? And you're going to have to count on those people as no votes, right? Because they're not going to approve something that's going to take away their rights. Also, we got to look at the Callaway case and how that may affect putting together a rental restriction amendment. Sometimes associations do a grandfather clause as part of the amendment. And, you know, what that says is that all people who are currently renting are grandfathered or maybe all owners are currently grandfathered. And we'll be able to rent or do short-term rentals, but any new owners who are coming into the association wouldn't be able to short-term rent or rent at all. And so these are all some kind of creative things that we've had to adopt and adjust to based upon the changes that the legislature has made since 2016. Interestingly, if you Google issues with short-term rentals, you're going to start to see that there are a number of cities, towns, and municipalities who are starting to implement short-term penalties, short-term rental penalties for bad owners and bad tenants. And we're going to be talking about that at a future seminar. And we're doing some research this summer with some law clerks that our firm is working with to come up with the specifics on what each city has in terms of, you know, Paradise Valley and Scottsdale have already implemented some pretty serious penalties and restrictions for landlord owners who have bad short-term tenants in their properties. 
And so we're going to be talking about that in the future. So make sure you're tuning into our future neighborhood services, virtual seminars, and also you're checking out our webpage for our firm and our social media on Facebook and um, LinkedIn and Twitter, because these are hot topics and we're going to be introducing different new cheat sheets and some white papers this summer that are going to further evaluate some of these hot topics and how your associations can navigate these rental restriction amendments. So I thought it was notable that we bring it up. If you're having problem with short-term rental issues in your community, reach out to our firm. We have some very successful methods to get the landlord owners to comply. First line of defense is we may be going to the cities to complain about the short-term renters and the, the tenant landlord that is allowing these short-term rentals that are violating possibly city ordinances and definitely the association's restrictions. We also can fine the owners for bad behavior by their tenants. Typically, I will contact the owner landlord and let them know that, hey, if this continues, we may need to file a lawsuit against you, and this could result in thousands of dollars of attorney's fees. And usually that phone call gets things set on the right path. You do have remedies, of course, if you have short-term rentals in your property, in your association. I just want to make sure that you're reaching out to your legal counsel to help you with that if you're having issues. Okay, we have a great cheat sheet on this topic. If you're interested in hearing more about how to effectively work with rental properties, we'll be sharing that cheat sheet with you on Zoom and also on Facebook Live. And don't forget, we have over 65 different cheat sheets on various topics pertaining to HOA and condominium law in Arizona. Basically, we write a cheat sheet about hot topics that we're hearing questions from our clients on to better assist you and give you knowledge at your fingertips 24-7, 365 on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Another kind of important thing to note is that we also have a ton of great videos for board members, managers, owners who want to learn more about association topics, legal topics pertaining to associations. We have over 50 videos that have been recorded since 2020. Every one of these neighborhood services, virtual academies that we've done over the past two years is on our website, on our video tab. And I'm really proud to announce that we have over 58,000 views of the videos of our videos that our firm has put out on HOA and condo law. We've got all different topics, all different lengths of the videos. Some are three minutes, some are a full hour. And there's a lot of great information as a resource for you if you're interested in that on our website at mukakeylawfirm.com. Okay, let's go right into our questions. I am right on time, which is surprising. I'm only one minute over. So today, it looks like we have a number of great questions. Looks like we have about 15 questions for from our panel today. So the first question is a board member, and it says, per Arizona statutes, I started recording our board meetings. Another director announced that he'd miss the next meeting. Is there anything wrong with providing the video to another board member? So definitely not. You certainly have the right to do that. Recognize if you're, we have a cheat sheet on this topic too, that's very helpful called Arizona Open Meeting Laws and Rules for Recording Association Meetings. There's a statute in Arizona that specifically addresses owner's ability to record to association open board meetings and the board can record the open board meetings. So of course you can provide that to another board member. If this recording is an official record being taken by the association's board, an owner could also request a copy of that recording. So I just wanted to make you aware of that. Okay, next question is from a treasurer at an association. 
Is the legislature still seriously considering eliminating the requirement that an HOA is required to send out monthly statements to every owner, regardless if the bank pays many of them automatically? Are they seriously considering it? At this point, I can say no. This was a bill that was passed prior to the pandemic, I think in 2018 or 19 by our legislature, and it is a complete waste of money. Basically, it requires the association to send out a statement of account to every owner every month, if your assessments are monthly, every month, letting them know how much they owe. There was a bill in the 2022 legislature, House Bill 2730, that addressed this topic and, um, you know, change it up so that associations wouldn't have to provide it to every owner. Maybe it was only to the owners that had a delinquency with the association, which would be a fix that would be appreciated. But that bill hasn't been going anywhere since February 10th of 2022 in the legislature. And typically, if the bills aren't moving, especially right now, when have been passed by at least one chamber, it's not going anywhere this year. So that'll be something that we'll likely see be introduced again in 2023 in the legislature. And just from my standpoint, that is a necessary bill. That is an expense that is unnecessary and just a waste of resources for associations. So I hope that the legislature will step up and fix that in next year's legislative session. Okay, next question. We are in the process of amending our CCNRs and articles. If the CCNRs pass and the articles, which required two-third vote of all owners, do not pass, can we implement the revised CCNRs? Okay, so great question. So it looks like your association has Um, You're trying to amend both your CCNRs and your articles. You're likely doing this on the same ballot. And the ballot is likely indicating that the CCNRs have a certain percentage to approve and the articles have a different percentage to approve. If the ballot comes back and you get the requisite approval to amend one but not the other, yes, of course, the one that you have the requisite percentage on passes and goes through the whole amendment process to formalize the amendment. Next question is from an owner. Can an association member or owner file a lawsuit on behalf of the association, especially if the association lacks funds, as seven rental units out of 26 are making legal fee expenses significant and the association's budget lacks funds because of this? So really good question from an owner. If I were in your circumstance, what I would do is I would look at what the CCNRs state on this for your association. Sometimes it's, it is rare, but sometimes an association member can file a lawsuit to enforce CCNRs. Now, of course, they can't do it on behalf of the association because only the association you know, can represent themselves through legal counsel. But in some cases, association members have the legal right to enforce the CCNRs against another member. It's rare, but in some cases that does happen. What you may want to do is, if you don't have that provision in your documents, is you may want to really evaluate, you may want to get on the board so that the board starts making better decisions on how they're using their funds. You may want to think about potentially sending a letter to the board asking why they're spending money on certain things and not others. These are some options that you have. Also, you always would have an option to pursue legal remedies against the association, whether it's through the Arizona Department of Real Estate, through their program that they have through that, um, you can have disputes heard, or by through litigation. So you do have a number of different options. Check your CCNR so to see if you have 
the right to act on behalf of the association in terms of enforcing the CCNRs. Next question. We have four sets of CCNRs for our HOA and there are 225 homes in our HOA. Can I merge the four documents into one with no changes without the owners voting? Answer to that question would be no. You'd have to have a vote of each of the sections to degree. There's this is probably structured as lots one through 50 have one set of CCNRs, 51 through 100 have another set or however it was set up in your association. So bottom line is, no, it's not that easy. Um, you're going to have to amend each of those four CCNRs to incorporate it into one CCNR. And so you're going to kind of have to decide, is it worth it? We've gone through this process with associations before, so I have some good in insight on how it can be done successfully. And if your association is interested, be sure to reach out to me and I can give you some feedback on how to do that. Okay, question six. Can you address the HOA's rights if a homeowner wants to rent his house to an agency that runs group homes? Yes, I have a wonderful cheat sheet on this topic on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. We're also going to be sharing it with you here on Zoom and Facebook Live. It's our cheat sheet on federal laws. And basically, under the Fair Housing Act, in certain circumstances, group homes are permissible as to be able to operate a group home within an association. And a couple of things that you know you want to look into is first you want an association if you're in this circumstance, you should request documentation from the group home operator that verifies the existence of a disability, you know, that the group home is for disabled persons and therefore it falls under the Fair Housing Act and we'd be required to allow the group home to operate in your association, despite the fact that you most associations have a no business can't run a business out of your home. And obviously a group home would be a business, but the federal law trumps here. And so if it's a group home that's covered under the Fair Housing Act, the association would have to allow it. So the question I have is what are our rights if a homeowner wants to have a group home in the association? So number one, ask for information from the group home operator about who the residents of the group home are and check with your legal counsel to make sure that the group home is covered as one of the group homes that's covered under the disability related needs under the Fair Housing Act. So ask for more information. Number two, if they are something that is covered under the Fair Housing Act and we have to allow the group home, remember that they have to follow the rules just like any other owner would have to follow rules. So the residents and any employees which may be coming into the association would have to comply with parking rules and visitors would have to comply with parking rules and they'd have to maintain the property and there'd have to be trash would need to be disposed in an appropriate manner, just like any other owner would have that requirement. Um, and they have to maintain their buildings, maintain their landscaping, any changes to their architectural modifications would need to have architectural committee approval or board approval. If there's any noise or other nuisances that are being created by the group home, we would be able to treat that just like any other owner's violations would be treated. So one thing, just some closing thoughts on the group homes is I have been through this process with a number of associations and initially the boards are upset and unhappy about a home being used as a group home. But what I've found is that the group home operators typically are very good owners. They pay, they maintain their property. 
and there really aren't any issues that are that come up um, with regard to parking or nuisances. So that's just important for me to share with you if you're navigating that process. It has been a positive for many other associations. Okay, question number seven. We have a person who wants to do away with most CCNRs and bylaws in our association. He believes we are all neighbors and we should get along and that the CCNRs make it too hard to get things done. How would you respond to this person? I mean, there's a process to eliminate CCNRs and bylaws and it's a very difficult, it's a very census. So it's an easy short answer would be move to a community that doesn't have a planned community or condo, no CCNRs and no bylaws. That's the easy answer. The hard answer would be you can't just do away with these things because there's an expectation that people purchase their lot in this association because of the CCNRs. And of course, if you look at your CCNRs and you know that there's a percentage to remove the restrictions from your property and invalidate the CCNRs, if you can get that percentage vote as outlined in your documents, then of course, you certainly would have the right to do that. Now, if you're thinking about doing that, you definitely want to talk with your legal counsel. But in my experience, it's very difficult. I think in 25 years, I've maybe done three associations where we wind down the affairs of the association and remove the restrictions on the property. It's very difficult. So it's not something that we see very often. And the board doesn't have the option to just look the other way and not enforce the CCNRs and the bylaws. They have a fiduciary duty to act in the best interest of the association. So that's not something the board can do, just blow off the documents because maybe owners don't want them to be so strict. One thing you might want to think about doing is doing an amendment to your CCNRs. If there are provisions in there that people see as being too strict or whatever, that's another option that you can think about for your association. Okay, next question. New homeowners move in. They made changes to their front yard without notifying the board. According to our CCNRs, they are in violation. What is the best way for the board to handle? Okay, so we have a cheat sheet on this topic too. It's called Enforcement of Governing Documents. And you can find that on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com on our cheat sheet tab, or we're sharing it with you now on Zoom and Facebook Live. So really, the best thing to do would be to start out, I mean, they're new owners. Um, I would recommend that you send them a courtesy violation letter. I would recommend that you follow whatever your enforcement procedure is. Then maybe it's a more formal demand letter. Then maybe it's fining the owner. Then maybe it's sending it to the attorney to send a violation letter. You may be going the litigation route. You may go to the ADRE and have a complaint filed with the Arizona Department of Real Estate. It really just depends. Um, hopefully, this can be resolved amicably. They're a new owner. Maybe their changes aren't that significant. That phone call could rectify the issue. But I think we outlined for you really well in our cheat sheet enforcement of governing documents, a good process for you to follow that I think would be helpful. So I would encourage you to take a look at that. Okay, question number nine. Does the cost to update CCNRs also include updating the bylaws? Do the homeowners vote on the revised CCNRs and bylaws? So what you want to do is for the CCNRs and the bylaws, you'll have to look at, they both have a different amendment provision, right? And you can vote on them at the same time. You can vote on them separately. You can put it on one ballot. You can put it on two ballots, whatever is easiest for you. The cost to update the CCNRs, the general range of the cost that I gave earlier in this presentation did not include the cost to update the bylaws. 
Typically, the bylaws are a much simpler document to amend. Um, They're always shorter, and a lot of the changes to state law are pretty easy to make to the bylaws. So I would budget maybe somewhere between $800 and $1,200 to amend your bylaws. And like I said, the cost update to CCNRs could be really anywhere from $1,000 to maybe all the way up to $8,000. Average is probably $5,000 to update the CCNRs. So the homeowners are going to vote on, typically you got to look at what the amendment provisions say, but they're going to vote on the amendments, the CCNRs and the bylaws. And like I said, you can do it together or separately. Our next question, number 10, and it looks like we have, we're up to, gosh, we're going quick. We've got 20 questions now. Question number 10, can you suggest a methodology for our board to legally obtain signatures or do we need a hard signature? Again, look at your CCNRs to determine will they allow you to send out a vote electronically or do you need to have it notarized, a hard signature notary? We are starting to see a lot more of these votes being conducted electronically and that seems to be a very successful way to do it. But again, it has to be consistent with what your amendment provisions are for your CCNRs. Question 11, can you elaborate more on a side vote for controversial issues? So typically a controversial amendment, I'm going to give you an example, would be maybe you're amending your entire CCNRs to rewrite it, make it clearer, make it consistent with Arizona law. And then you also want to add something in there like on a capital improvement fee. So you want to say that every new owner who purchases a lot in the association must pay a capital improvement fee or a transfer fee of $2,000. That sometimes can be controversial or rental restrictions. Maybe you want to impose a minimum rental period of six months. So owners can rent, but they can only rent if it's up to, it has to be a lease for six months. Those are controversial. Anytime there's money or rentals, those kind of seem to be a little bit more controversial. So if I was structuring the amendment and we determined that, hey, that's going to be controversial and I'm not sure we can get the percentage that we need to amend on that document. So what you want to do is maybe have the CCNRs have a ballot and the first vote on the ballot is up or down, amend the CCNRs, yes or no, and get the owners the opportunity to vote on that. Then the next vote is going to be on the transfer fee or the capital improvement fee, yes or no, to approve that. The third vote might be yes or no to implement the six-month minimum rental period. That way, if the second and third vote don't pass, the first vote may still pass. And the first vote, of course, doesn't have those two controversial things in it. And so that's a way to structure it. And typically, we only do that if we have a feeling that we can't get 67% or 75% of the owners to, to agree to those changes that are more controversial. And we've made a bunch of other changes to the document that we want to have passed that are not controversial. And we think we can get the 67 or 75% or whatever the percentage is. That's a suggestion that we do to try to get over that threshold and get at least one of the things passed. Okay, next question. If an association recorded its last CCNR restatement more than 30 days after approval by the requisite percentage of the membership, but the validity of the restatement was not challenged within one year of the belated recording date, is the restatement valid or invalid? It's likely still valid. 
for a condominium, there's one year to challenge the amendment to the CCNRs. I'm guessing you're a condominium because you're bringing up the one year. So I still think it's valid. And sometimes that happens where you blow it on the 30 days, you still record it. And if no one challenges it, it's considered valid. The same thing in terms of if you're a planned community and you blow it, you don't get it done within the 30 days. You should obviously make best efforts to do that. But if something happens, there's a mistake, there's going to be six years for them to challenge it. And so you'd have to wait longer than the one year for the challenge on that. But it doesn't make it invalid during the one year where if they're waiting for a challenge, it just if somebody does challenge it, then you want to get your legal counsel involved and start thinking about how can we address this situation. Okay, next question, number 13. How do you determine ownership for the upkeep of the surrounding HOA walls? Those facing into our community, we repair and paint. We have one back wall that faces another HOA greenbelt. It needs a lot of TLC. Who owns the responsibility? Some board members say the other HOA. That's a legal issue that we're really going to have to look at the CCNRs and the plat to determine who's responsible for the maintenance of it. Also, is the wall located on the property line? If it's on the property line, typically that other HOA is going to be responsible for maintaining their side. And you need to reach out to them and let them know that it's not being maintained and causing issues. That's probably going to be the answer on this one. But again, I'd like to see your CCNRs on your plat to make a final determination. Next question from a long-term client. Good to see you here today. Do you vote for all the changes or each change individually? So we're talking about CCNR amendments. Typically, we'll vote on an all or nothing vote for all the changes at once. Occasionally, we'll break it out on those controversial subjects and vote on those individually. I do not, under any circumstances, think it's a good idea to take a 40-page document, CCNR amendment, and have owners vote on each amendment in the 40 pages. I think that's a bad idea and it'll be confusing to the owners and it'll take forever. And you likely won't even get people to respond because it's so onerous, so much work to do it. Okay, next question. What are your thoughts on restricting rental sex offenders or those with a history of criminal offenses? Creating rules requiring owners and landlords to do background checks prior to accepting rentals. Please share your comments on this. Okay, this is definitely a controversial topic. So this all kind of came about at, in, I think it was 2006, it's been a while now, where our legislature put a section in the, maybe it was a little later than that, maybe it was 2012. Anyways, our legislature put something in some changes to the statutes that talked about sex offenders. And basically it said something along the lines of, an association is not prohibited from enforcing a CCNR provision restricting certain level sex offenders. And it was worded weird because the way that it was worded was our legislature, and this is the law, it said an association is not forbidden or prohibited from enforcing a CCNR provision limiting or restricting sex offenders. The reality here is that no CCNRs that I've ever seen have had a provision restricting or prohibiting sex offenders from living in the community. So it was almost like, was the legislature giving us the green light to implement restrictions to our CCRs that would give us the ability to prohibit, you know, sex offenders? I don't know. But what I can tell you is be careful. If you're an association that wants to prohibit sex offenders, 
there may be some issues, constitutional issues, that could make something like that a challenge on something like that be very expensive, go all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. So I would not advise our clients to implement restrictions in your CCNRs prohibiting sex offenders unless the client understood the risks and understood that, hey, this could be challenged and this could be very expensive to defend. On a different note, what about residents or tenants that have criminal background? Maybe they're felonies or misdemeanors or whatever. Can we require owners to do background checks prior to accepting such a rental? I think the way that the legislation is currently worded, we cannot ask the, or I know that the way that the legislation is currently worded, we cannot ask owners to provide, owner and landlords to provide us with um, criminal background checks on their tenants. That is not something that the association can mandatorily require owners to provide that are renting their units or lots. If we wanted to place a responsibility on owner landlords to do criminal background checks, that would be something that would have to be in the CCNRs, that you'd have to do an amendment to the CCNRs. But I still think based upon the way that the wording of the statute, I don't think we could require that they give us the criminal background checks as the association. We could just make it an obligation of the owner to do that. But it'd be really hard to enforce because if they don't have to give it to us, how would we know it was ever done? Remember, just on the topic of sex offenders, June 1996, Arizona legislature adopted the Arizona Sex Offenders Community Notification Statutes. If you Google Arizona and Megan's Law and type in your address for your association, you will find any sex offenders that are living in the vicinity of your association so that you're aware of them. Also, occasionally, associations will receive notice from the sheriff's department or from parole officers that a sex offender is moving into your neighborhood. We have seen that happen in many associations over the years. The best advice we can give you is to notify your membership, just forward the paperwork that the sheriff or the parole officer sends to the association. Just notify the owners of the same information so that all owners are notified that a sex offender is living in your association or in close proximity to your association. Okay, next question, number 16. Where do disabled and elderly people find answers to how the CCNRs are changed in the community that they have lived in for over 40 years by new owners? Where did they start? Great question. So hopefully you have a contact number for your association or an email for your association or a place where you send your monthly assessment or quarterly assessment. What I would do is to reach out to your management company or your board through one of those means by emailing them, calling them at a number for the association, or when you mail in your assessment payment, put a letter in there saying, I would like to have a current copy of the CCNRs for our association so that you get a current copy. Also, if you're savvy on the internet, you can go to Maricopa County Recorder's Office website, type in your association's name, and do a search for restrictions or CCNRs on the property, and you might be able to find it that way as well. Okay, next question, number 17. How does a planned community dissolve an HOA? Wow, second question on this today. You're going to have to look at your CCNRs in terms of what the percentage is to dissolve an HOA. Typically, it's 80%. It's usually what's in the CCNRs. Sometimes it's 100%. So you'll want to look at your CCNRs and you want to involve your legal counsel because there's a number of steps to undo or dissolve an HOA. You have to 
amend your CCNRs to dissolve the association. You have to determine what's going to happen with the common areas. You know, the association owns them. We're paying insurance on them. How is that going to work? Will the city, town, or municipality take the common areas back? I doubt they will. You have to also undo the corporate status of the association and undo the bylaws. So there's a very lengthy process that you have to follow if you want to dissolve your HOA. Next question, number 18. Our bylaws and CCNRs are beyond 30 years old. Should we start with the CCNRs or can we start with the bylaws? Ideally, do them both at the same time. It's more efficient, cost efficient to just bang it out and get it done. But if you had to pick one or the other, I would start with the CCNRs because that is probably the most important document for your association, in my opinion. Question number 19, are renters allowed to attend HOA monthly meetings? Why or why not? We have a great cheat sheet on this topic called How to Effectively Work with Rental Properties that I would encourage you to take a look at. Number one, Arizona legislature or Arizona statutes do not give renters the right to attend HOA monthly meetings. It's basically just owners are allowed to attend the monthly meetings of the HOA. Also, owners can appoint a designated representative to attend a monthly board meeting. So the owner could make their tenant or renter their designated representative in writing, and then the tenant would legally be able to attend the meeting. So really the only way that a renter would be allowed is if the owner made them their designated agent in writing to attend the board meetings, and then the renter would be able to attend. Otherwise, no. The renters are not allowed to attend unless the board allows them to attend. Some boards do, most boards don't. Okay, next question. Our neighborhood association maintains an email distribution list of homeowners. Based on feedback from a majority of the homeowners, these are privately maintained and not shared with other homeowners without permission of the homeowner. Recently, we received pushback saying that we are blocking free communication among the homeowners, calling it secrecy. There's nothing in the documents relative to how the distribution list is maintained. What are your thoughts on dealing with this? So my thoughts are that emails are personal information, same thing with telephone numbers, and that unless the owners specifically agree to have that personal information, their email or their cell phone or their home telephone number shared with the community, that it's personal information and it shouldn't be shared with other homeowners. Okay, next question. Our previous management company never sent out violations. We are trying to fix that with new management. If a homeowner purchased a home with violations in place, how should that be rectified? So that's a really good question because I don't know how long the violations have been around on this property and how long we've known about them, but maybe hadn't enforced them. So as a rule of thumb, you're going to have to look at these on a case-by-case basis. So as a rule of thumb, you're going to need to look at, has the violation existed for more than three years? If so, we may be forbidden to enforce it under waiver latches. Can we resolve this amicably with the owner by just trying to work it out with the owner with a phone call or a nice note? If the homeowner purchased the home with the violations and we didn't disclose it on the disclosure statement, is the homeowner going to be upset and are they going to refuse to do it? All these are really good questions that we'll just have to look at on a case-by-case basis. Question number 22, a new owner on the weekend after closing escrow and before even moving in, cut down a large, healthy, very mature tree in their front yard. 
which is in violation of our design requirements. Since the tree is already cut down, what is the best way to handle this? How can we prevent or reduce the continuing loss of trees simply because they are getting to a size that impedes views? Okay, so wonderful question. So what my what I would recommend on this particular situation is you definitely need to document in writing to the new owner the position of the board that they violated the documents by removing the tree without going through the proper procedure. Typically, the procedure is to submit an application architectural approval, and if they got permission to remove the tree, then they could have removed the tree. What you may want to do is first look at your CCNRs, make sure that the tree removal is something that they would have had to have approval of the architectural committee or the board to do. If that's the case and they did it anyways without approval, you may want to consider levying a fine for the tree being removed. You may want to try to require them to put a new tree in the place of that tree so it looks appropriate. Again, I'd have to look at your documents to give you a full range of different options, but you know, best way to handle it is to punish them for doing this. If you have, if this is in fact a violation, communicating with your owners frequently about how important it is, this issue is important to the board, and that if you're thinking about doing something like this, you really need permission. These are all suggestions on how you can handle that. Okay, so we finished our questions. We have a great number of questions today, 22. We had 120 attendees today on Zoom, which is awesome. That might be an all-time high, plus 20 who attended today on Facebook Live for a grand total of 140 people here today, which is amazing because it's summertime. And sometimes in summer, we see a little bit of a lull in people attending classes, but not when it's on Zoom because we can stay home and in our air conditioning and we don't have to go out, right? So thank you so much for being here today with us for class number six six of our 2022 virtual HOA Condo Academy series. I'd like to give a special thank you to the partnership that we have with the city of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe. It's truly been a pleasure for our firm to partner with you since the pandemic, prior to the pandemic with in-person classes, and now post-pandemic, hopefully, to partner with you for these classes, these virtual classes, which give owners and property managers and board members a place to hear more about important topics in our different HOAs and condominiums, have a free resource to ask questions and get questions answered, and just to provide valuable information so that everybody can live harmoniously in their communities. It's very encouraging to see all the continued interest in our virtual seminars. We have a very high participation with the virtual seminars, and we appreciate you tuning in each month. As I stated previously in our session today, we keep... Uh, videos of every single class that we teach for these neighborhood services, virtual HOA academies on our webpage at mulcahylawfirm.com. Lots of people go back to them as a resource after the classes to re-listen to them and maybe show to their other board members. And all this participation of looking at these videos has resulted in over 58,000 views of our videos on our website over the past two or three years. So that's incredible. And we thank you for coming back and looking at the videos after the fact. But I want to mention that we have our first Friday free call-in coming up on Friday, July 1st, right before our favorite holiday in our firm, which is the 4th of July. For those of you who may not be familiar with our virtual first Friday free call-in, it's always the first Friday of the month at 9 o'clock a.m. 
We go live on Zoom and Facebook Live and we answer your questions for free. You can submit your questions starting now through July 1st at 8.45 a.m. And we post information on this on many different means on Facebook and on our website. And you're welcome to join us for the next First Friday free call-in. We usually get a lot of good questions and it usually takes about an hour and a half to get through all of them. Also, we're going to be teaching our July class, July 19th for Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Academy. In that class, we're going to be talking about hot topics for HOAs and condominiums. We're going to go over most pressing issues for community associations, such as tone assessments, water issues, short-term rentals. We're going to spend some time on that. The new legislation by then will have some final updates as to what happened with all the bills in this year's legislative session. And we like this class because it gives us some flexibility to talk about what are the most pressing issues that are facing associations right now. And um, it could be anything from electric cars to water preservation to it might even be turf. You know, the, how do we handle these turf requests that started to come in, in in large numbers? So we hope you'll join us for that class again on July 19th at 11 o'clock a.m. on Zoom and Facebook Live. Thank you again for joining us today for our HOA Condo Academy class number six. And we hope to see you again at our first Fridays or our July 19th class. So take care, everybody. Have a great rest of the month. And we'll see you again on July 1st and July 19th. Bye. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at MulcahyLawFirm.com. The attend of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. 